Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, university professors and co-authors Gwendolyn Mink and Judy Wu talk about their book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress, published by New York University Press in May 2022. As a dedicated advocate for gender and racial equality, Patsy Mink represented her home state of Hawaii for 24 years. In 2002, Congress renamed the Title IX legislation as the Patsy T. Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. Professors Mink and Wu were interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kitty Kelly. Professors, first can we start with Patsy Mink herself? And if you would tell me what you see as her three, not three, you could do 10 greatest achievements. Dr. Mink. Well, I think that to her mind, being part of the process that produced Title IX and that made sure that it would be implemented with the greatest integrity possible was what she counted as probably at the top of her set of achievements, things that she was proud to have uh, facilitated, proud to have been a part of. Um, Her opposition to the war in Vietnam was an accomplishment, but for most of the period that she was an anti-war congressperson, she was on the losing side of legislative struggles over the war. And so it's sort of important to lift up the contributions of people who make arguments that need to be made even if they don't prevail at a particular moment because the long arc of those thoughts and ideas become part of the fabric of our future debates and discussions about, in this case, war and intervention and racism and war and and all of those issues that were part of that struggle. To stand up to the President of the United States and a majority of Americans at that time to say the war in Vietnam was immoral, I think required great courage. And unfortunately, we got President Nixon who kept the war going and extended it to Cambodia. But I salute Patsy Mink for standing up at that time. So I did put it at the top of her accomplishments. (laughs) Okay, Dr. we'll go for it. I was just gonna say that I agree with both of you. I think the courage to oppose the Vietnam War was such a defining aspect of Patsy Mink's political career especially because she was entering Congress just as the ground war was being introduced in Vietnam. It was being spearheaded by the president of the United States. And so she was opposing the political leaders of her own party in taking an anti-war stance. I also just wanted to highlight a couple of quotes and perspectives about Patsy Mink. And some of this is inspired by Kimberly Bassford's wonderful documentary called Ahead of the Majority. And there's a great quote by Patsy Mink where she says, you know, I've run many times and I've lost many times, but I've never lost the belief that I as an individual and you as an individual can make a difference. And that's so powerful to me because it's not 
always about political victories, but it's about that willingness to take the stance that's needed to articulate a vision for social justice. The other quote that I think of comes from the headline ahead of majority is that you have to be willing to take political risks. You can't wait for something to become politically safe, to become popular before you support it. And that's something that perhaps you make advocated for. And so when I think about her three greatest achievements, perhaps it's an approach to politics as opposed to the naming of specific policies. Dr. Wu, what you're saying speaks to the fight that women had at that time, which thankfully, hopefully, isn't quite as onerous now as it was then. I think there's a political approach that I talk about in the book. And one is the fact that she was someone who really tried to build political bridges, that she's in a formal realm of politics, but she's developing connections with social movements and trying to think about how to uplift their voices, their perspectives, and to introduce policies that reflected um, those visions. So whether it's the anti-war movement or the women's movement, she's trying to amplify their voices and translate that into policy. I think a second really important legacy was to have an intersectional approach to thinking about legislative policy development. So she's not thinking about the universal citizen, which often devolves into whiteness and, and maleness, but she's really thinking about those who have been marginalized the people who have been impoverished, the people who have not been at the table, and how do you uplift their voices and to think about policies that would really directly address their life conditions. And the third approach, I think, is about the ways in which she's bringing a perspective from the Pacific to Washington, D.C. She grew up and lived her life in Hawaii, which initially was a territory, and it became the 50th state. And being from Hawaii really shaped the way she thought about labor, about women's issues, about the environment, her concern about nuclear testing. All these different issues are really deeply shaped by her origins. And so I would answer your question slightly differently, not necessarily naming specific policy acts, but the type of political vision and political strategy that she utilized. And Dr. Mink, we're talking about your mother coming to office in the 1960s. She served 24 years intermittent terms, but 24 years, you're the daughter, the only child of Patsy Mink. You're accomplished, you're educated, and you came from a champion. Not just your mom, I get the feeling that your father was a fierce advocate for your mother and a stalwart partner to her. So how has that affected your life? I don't think I've done enough therapy to be able to answer that question. Um, well, I mean, I, I clearly benefited from my parents' political enterprises, their work, their commitments, and so forth. And it deeply shaped me. As an only child, I was more easily integrated, especially back in the 50s and 60s, where kids could you know, go out in public without too much um, fear of uh, social media attention and that sort of thing. I was very integrated into their activities and I was interested in their activities. And so I think that my own sort of outlook on the world, my own analysis of politics were all deeply informed by my mother's experiences, by observations of how the political world worked and by sort of a, an absorption of commitments that I learned along the way. 
This is Judy Wu. I'm really honored to work with Wendy on her mother's biography. And my sense is that they were such a close-knit family that they talked about politics over dinner. Wendy's father and Wendy herself were involved in political campaigns. It was very much a family affair. And that's such a beautiful idea for me that it's not just about a great woman, but the people who surround her and support her. I do want to comment though about your previous comment. So before Patsy Mink was elected to federal office in 1964 and eventually came into Congress in 65, she was running at the local level in the territorial House, territorial Senate. And then actually in her first campaign for the House of Representatives in 1959, just as Hawaii was becoming the 50th state. And during that time period, definitely there was intense scrutiny about her as a woman in politics, one of the few. But I, I wonder if those attitudes have necessarily lessened or disappeared. Just thinking about women running for office today, the comments are being made about their dress, their hairstyles. It's very much, I think, continues to be gendered today. Um, let's talk about the writing process. Dr. Mink, how did you find Dr. Wu? Lucky you. Very lucky me. I, I can't say that I found Dr. Wu. We converged. We converged on Second Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. when I was bellyaching about how I might consider writing a biography. And uh, she was exploring the collection of the Library of Congress to figure out how she would proceed with writing a biography. And uh, she reached out to me on the recommendation of some of her colleagues. And we developed a kind of working relationship, a conversational relationship, and then um, a few months in decided that we would collaborate. Were you both living in the same town? No, no Judy was at Ohio State and I was in DC. So it was a far-flung collaboration, but Judy can explain further, I think. Yeah, I used to take week-long trips to Washington, DC. At the time, my, both my kids were shorter than I was. <laughs> And I couldn't go for long periods of time. So I would spend a week in the archives, usually would see Wendy at least twice when I was there. And it was fun to be able to share with her what I found in the archives and she could recount what was happening in their lives at that particular historical moment that I was uncovering. Um, it was great to have dinners together. And initially I began by interviewing her. But when I discovered that her mother wanted Wendy to write her biography, it just made a lot of sense for us to collaborate, especially since Wendy can offer her, her memories, her reflections about being part of her family. And then I can offer a historical perspective about her mother's life. Let's tell the listeners a little bit how you did this. It seems to be alternating chapters. And Dr. Wu, you take the third person with a different print size actually in the book. And Dr. Mink, you take the first person, mom and me, with a different print size. How did you two decide on that? I think we sort of came to that conclusion fairly early on. And I'm not exactly sure what the lineage of, of the conversations and thought process were, but by way of background, I knew that there was a big problem for me writing a scholarly historical third-person account of my mother's life. 
given that I was so close to that life. And much of what I would want to write would be read as memoir, even if it was highly footnoted and, and what have you. There, there was very little I could do to, to inoculate the reader against the fact that there was a first person proximity that was uh, guiding the way that I approached the material. And so I think it was Judy's idea that we have completely separate voices. And it made a lot of sense because in a way it freed me to try to write vignettes that are historically grounded and sort of contribute to the forward motion of the historical story but within a framework that is very much driven by what I observed and witnessed and understood and collaborated with. So it is very much a, a first-person account. As writers, did one write one chapter and submit it to the other? And did you edit each other? What was the writing process? When I start thinking about how to tell a story of, of Patsy Ming's life, I came up with four different chronological periods. And so that those are the ones that are in the book today. So her life before federal office, her first set of terms from 65 to 77, the years when she was away from federal office, and then her return in 1990 until she passed away. And so within each of those chronological periods, the chapters are predominantly thematic, although not necessarily always the case. Sometimes they were more chronological as well. So I think we had agreed to that overall structure. And then we discussed the primary topic for each chapter. So we knew that we wanted to have a chapter about the anti-war activism of Patsy Mink. Wendy has very strong, profound memories of being involved in that movement from her own perspective. And so we decided on the topic and then we largely wrote separately from each other. We did share once we finished and we offered comments, although I offered very few comments to Wendy's chapters. I don't know what I can, else I can add to her, her memories. Um, we did comment after we've had a chance to write on our own. And that way there was more independence of development and ideas. Right, but we talked a little more granularly than just the general topics of the chapters because we needed to avoid repetition, right? So if, I was going to write about the Civil Rights Act of 1991. Judy needed to know that so she wouldn't spend a lot of time writing about the Civil Rights Act of 1991 in the chapter. So there's a kind of dovetailing that takes place and that's a product of conversation about what the ingredients of the, the topical chapter were gonna look like. Did you use a chronological outline? We had chronological sections. And I knew overall what type of topics I would cover within each section. I think the last part of the book, which is about her second set of terms, was the most challenging for me because there's so much more materials about her service in Congress 1990 onward. There's so much more documentation. There's a plethora of issues that we could have delved into more specifically. And so the last set of chapters, I really try to focus either on feminist activism or on activism or um, policy making related to immigration. So it became much more selective. So in some ways it was easier to write about the older periods. It was easier to delineate what were some of the most important issues, but for the more recent one, it, it took a lot more thought and reflection. How long did the book take you start to finish? My books take 10 years. 
<laughs> and when I first told Wendy that she looked aghast, she works at a much faster pace. But I think for her, this project also started earlier than when I began it. Dr. Ring, what do you say? I've started puttering around the issue of writing this biography, maybe around 2007, 2008. Started working in her papers in the Library of Congress without developing too much traction on any given thing. And I became overwhelmed actually at a certain point with the secondary research I needed to do in order to fully immerse myself in the history of the period beyond my mother, the, the history of the legislative challenges regarding the Vietnam War, or civil rights, all of that. I had to read the secondary material. I mean, fortunately, I taught some of that stuff. So some of it was uh, second nature to me, but some of it was not, and I needed to familiarize myself. So I was sort of puttering around with both sorts of things, looking through the papers, trying to figure out what I would want to write about that I could flesh out from the papers, and then also doing a secondary research. And then I met Judy, and then we proceeded. So my relationship to what ultimately became the book is probably maybe 12, 15 years. And uh, my relationship with Judy over the book is 10 years. We knew that we wanted to publish this year because it's the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And I realize now that perhaps the Library of Congress featured her papers on their website, which is how I, I found the materials, because it was the 40th anniversary of Title IX. So I think it's a nice bookend to our decade, or at least my decade-long endeavor. Yeah, It's quite amazing. This is a book, then, we can safely say of 25 years concentrated effort. Both of you are PhDs. Did your theses take this long? This is Judy and mine did. <laughs> I began graduate school because I was really inspired by social history, by this history of the people who tend to be left out of grand historical narratives. And so it was actually an interesting process for me to decide to write a biography for my dissertation. My dissertation advisors actually, I think, both warned me against it because they were both engaged in biographical projects. And I think I didn't quite understand their warning, so I did it anyway. <laughs> I have to ask, who was your subject? My first book is called Dr. Mom Chung of the Fair-Haired Bastards, The Life of a Wartime Celebrity. And she was the first American-born woman to become a medical doctor during the 1930s and 1940s during the Sino-Japanese War and World War II. She created this surrogate family of over 2,000, mostly men in the military, but also entertainers as part of her wartime family. And they mutually committed themselves to you know, supporting the U.S. and Chinese war efforts. So that was my first exposure to biography writing. And you, Dr. Meng, is this your first? It's my first biography or first biographical work, but I've written quite a few other books about policy history and American politics. Um, although Judy thinks I write fast, my first book, which came from my dissertation, so if you mark it from the beginning of my dissertation to the publication of the book was 10 years. Yeah. Is this your 10th book? This is 10th with my name on it, but three or four of those are anthologies that I edited. With that kind of a background, Dr. Mink and Dr. Wu, what advice would you give to writers who are going to collaborate on one subject? So what advice would you give? I think it's okay not to have a seamless narrative. I know that we're encouraged to have a consistent voice 
and to have a strong narrative arc. But I think individuals are so multifaceted and they're complicated, they're contradictory. And so I don't think we necessarily need to have a genre that always seeks coherence <laughs> when our subjects themselves are so um, nuanced. And I think it's such a treat for me to be able to hear Wendy's stories about her family, um, her insights about politics, that I think it would have been a disservice for us to try to create one narrative when I think all of this can really benefit from hearing multiple perspectives about the same person or the same topic. Dr. Mink, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I certainly agree with Judy's description and impulse to your larger question about advice to collaborators. I don't know, this was in a way a very unique collaboration. First of all, we were incredibly lucky that we found each other and uh, we had the same interest and were able to work together in a very smooth way and edit each other and make suggestions and whatever in a very productive way. And that's not always the case. I mean, I've collaborated before and always with success, but it's never been quite as easy as the collaboration with Judy. So I, I, my suggestion to people who want to collaborate in telling the life of a person is hope for the best and you know, find some good luck and connect with somebody who you can work well with. Yeah, definitely, because we're writing about a feminist political leader who really valued collaboration. It's not about a one-person championing of a particular cause, but it's about a collective movement towards social justice. And so I'm really proud of the fact that our method of writing and analysis in some ways mirrored that process of collaboration. Yes, you're both shaking your heads and you forget. Yes, that is, that, that is exactly what we did. <laughs> I really valued Wendy's perspective because she lived through that time period and she's also a scholar of politics. And so I wanted to make sure that I got it right. So I definitely benefited from her insights and critiques and you know, even about writing. You were both associated with California, uh, one in Irvine and... The other, I'm sorry, I forget. Santa Cruz. I was at Santa Cruz. Thank you. In the university system, you chose New York University as your publisher. I was just curious why. I think the editor there really got our vision for the book. So we talked to different presses and there was encouragement either to have a solo voice or to have authors who are more distant from passing. So different presses gave us feedback and New York University Press just right away said, you know, they like the format, they like what we're trying to bring. So I think there was a coming together of a vision for this particular book. Did you go through an agent or did you represent yourselves? We just represented ourselves. How did you do it? I think this is more common among academics that we tend to meet editors at conferences and we pitch ideas to them. But actually, Wendy, I don't remember if we approached NYU or they approached us. I believe they approached you, again, via a conference. In academic publishing, the editors who are, you know, have different 
baskets of topical responsibilities usually also sort of follow what the scholarship is and who's working on what. And Judy is a well-published scholar and I'm a well-published scholar. So it's not like there's no evidence of activity. So I think that probably the NYU editor tracked Judy at a conference, recognized the kind of work Judy had done and reached out. And it was almost exclusively Judy negotiating attention from these various presses, many of whom, she's gently saying, didn't want me to be involved (laughs) because they, they didn't really want the first person voice. Partly it's an academic press, right? There's an academic vision of the dispassionate third party that controls scholarly writing, and I violate that. Dr. Mink, did it occur to you or to Dr. Wu to go to a commercial publisher? I don't think we had necessarily the contacts with commercial publishers. I did want to just mention Wendy's last point about certain editors not wanting her involvement, because Now that the book is out, I think people are interested because it has both our voices. And in particular, that it has Wendy's perspective as the daughter of Patsy Mink. So it enriches the the book so much to have her views and perspectives and, and insights about her mother's life. You do say towards the end of your book, you draw a comparison between your mother and um, Alexandria Ortiz Cortez, AOC. Specifically, The comparison arose over AOC calling out derisive misogynist behavior in the Congress. And the key point is that women of color have been doing this in Congress so long as they've been in Congress from the first, which was my mother, through the present day. And that there are trajectories of representation that they stand for and qualities of representation that they bring to the table that's so important to value. I think we were also citing the work of Dana Frank, who is one of Dr. Ming's former colleagues at UC Santa Cruz, and where she makes that connection in an op-ed. Patsy Ming passed away 20 years ago, and that's not so long ago. And her political colleagues are now still in office. I think this is one of the reasons why Speaker Nancy Pelosi has such a commitment to honor and commemorate her. They shared the floor together. They were political allies. So I think the vision that Patsy Mink brought, because she was so committed to take political risks, there's a lot that we can learn from her that is still relevant today. If we want to think about gender equity, if we want to think about racial equity, if we want to think about protecting the environment, her political vision is still so relevant for us today. This is a woman of importance. And the book is important. I really, I salute you both. Well, thank you. Coming from you, that really means a lot. You just heard co-authors Gwendolyn Mink and Judy Wu speaking with fellow biographer Kitty Kelly about their book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress, published by New York University Press in May 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on July 22nd of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. 
I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.